We're in the middle of a seven-day Yamtif, a seven-day festival, the festival of Sukkot. Now, it's a bit deceptive because you have seven days, but then appendage to it at the end, you have Shmini Atzeres, which is the eighth day. And in the diaspora, we always add another day, and that's Simchas Torah. So it's really nine days of festivities, nine days of joy, and there are a lot of themes happening. Of course, we sit in the sukkah. And we shape the lula of the four species. And on Simchas Torah, we celebrate the completion of the Torah. And we dance with the Torah. We complete the Torah. We begin it anew. A lot of moving parts to these days. And I wanted to suggest a new approach to these days in general. Specifically, to understand, or to speculate perhaps, how they are related to the days that preceded them. Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days of repentance, and Yom Kippur. And what exactly is the takeaway that we're supposed to take away from these days? And I want to begin with a question. The eponymous mitzvah of these days is to sit in the sukkah. The festival is called Sukkis, and we sit in a sukkah, a temporary dwelling structure. It's got to have a minimum of three walls, and you cover the roof with schach, which is trees or branches that have been severed from the ground. And for seven days, we leave our permanent homes and move into the sukkah. Now, why do we do that? So the verse tells us, this is in Vayikra, Leviticus 23. The reason why we leave our permanent homes and move into the temporary homes, move into the sukkah, so that your generations should know that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they sat in the sukkah. In order to remember the Exodus, And the circus that we dwelled in after the Exodus, we refashion those same circus and we dwell in it for seven days. Now, there's a very famous dispute amongst the Tanoim, the authors of the Mishnah. What exactly does it mean that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they sat in circus? According to one opinion, it was Sukkos Mamish. It was real booths, tents that the Jewish people sat in after the Exodus. That is one opinion. A second opinion says that no, it wasn't booths, tents, Sukkos that match ours. No, it's not referring to a physical structure the Jewish people lived in for 40 years. Rather, it is referring to the clouds of glory. And Rashi and the, the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch, they rule that, in fact, the reason why we sit in a sukkah, it's to remember the clouds of glory, the Anane HaKavod that cocooned and enveloped the nation for 40 years. Now, these clouds, they were not ordinary clouds. They're very powerful, very magical, very miraculous clouds. Right after the Exodus, The verse tells us that the Almighty was going before the Jewish people with a pillar of cloud to guide their way. And for 40 years, the Jewish people were enshrouded, were enveloped by these clouds. We're told that there were seven clouds in each direction, ahead of them, to the right, to the left, and behind them, above them and below them. So they were sandwiched by these clouds. And there was a seventh cloud that was the scout going ahead of them and clearing the path of the Jewish people, flattening the mountains, raising the valleys, killing any threats or dangers that are in their path. 
So these are completely spiritual clouds with all kinds of miraculous properties. They're making the topography uniform. They're making the trek smoother. They're clearing away the dangers. And our sages even tell us that they would clean their garments. You would have dirty clothing and you would put it into the cloud and it would clean it, it would iron it, it would be like a dry cleaning. Now, the clouds also had a very important military benefit, and that is that the clouds made them invisible to their enemies. They were isolated in these clouds, in this hermetic environment, and they were shielded from their neighbors, from their enemies. In fact, when Aaron died, the Talmud tells us that in the merit of Aaron, we had these clouds. And right after Aaron died, the nation of Amalek attacked the Jewish people. And our sages tell us it's because when Aaron died, temporarily, these clouds went away. They were later restored by Moshe. But there was a period, there was a small window of time where they weren't protected by these clouds, and then they were vulnerable, they were exposed, and that's why the nation of Amalek came to attack the Jewish people. But for the duration of the 40 years, absent that one small period after the death of Aaron, the nation was completely invisible to their enemies, and they could travel like Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility, do whatever they want, go wherever they want, and be completely shielded from their enemies. When the nation was told to move, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle and traveled. They followed these clouds. When it was daytime, the clouds were white. When it was nighttime, the clouds were reddened. These clouds were the environment in which the Jewish people lived for 40 years. And we have a mitzvah for seven days every year to sit in the sukkah to perpetuate the memory of these clouds and to remember the miracles that they did for us in the wilderness, to remember these unbelievable clouds. That was really the environment in which the Jewish people lived, to remember them for 40 years. That's the mitzvah, or the primary mitzvah, the eponymous mitzvah of these days. But there's a very basic question that everyone asks. When did these clouds begin? Right after the Exodus. The verse says explicitly, when the Jewish people left Egypt, right away they were given these clouds. And these clouds were ever-present for 40 years. Again, with the small exception of when Aaron died, with a second small exception after the golden calf. For 40 years, the Jewish people had these clouds. And it began at the time of the Exodus, which we know is Pesach time, the month of Nisan. Now we are the furthest away in the calendar from the month of Nisan. So why do we celebrate the clouds of glory? And why do we sit in the sukkah now when it's not the time that this miracle, that these clouds began to encircle us? Why do we mark this festival in the 15th day of the month of Tishrei, exactly a half a year after we left Egypt, and exactly a half a year, the furthest time in the calendar from when these miraculous clouds actually began to enshroud us. This is a very basic question that we have to ask, 
And the commentaries offer a variety of answers. So one of the answers are, well, really we should have had this mitzvah to sit in the sukkah during the festival of Pesach. That would make more sense. But Pesach is at the beginning of the summer. It's springtime. And that's the time where everyone loves to go outside and spend time in the gazebo. And therefore, if we sat in the sukkah Pesach time, then everyone would think that, well, it's springtime, everyone wants to get outside, we endured a whole long winter, now it's time to get some fresh air. Let's go sit in the sukkah. But no one would realize that we're doing it for a mitzvah. No one would remember the sukkah of, of the Exodus. No one would remember that. But now, when it's the beginning of the winter, and everyone begins to hunker down and go inside and winterize their homes. And now we go out to the sukkah. It's undoubtedly for the mitzvah. Everyone realizes there's something unusual happening here. Everyone has the realization this is for the mitzvah, not because it's the time of year to spend outdoors. I want to point out, this idea is found in the commentary of the tour who lived in Europe, in Houston, Sukkah's time. It's still sweltering. It's a very unpersuasive argument to say that this is why we go out to the Sukkah right now, because it's unnatural. It's still quite unnatural, I guess, anytime throughout the summer to go into the Sukkah. But that's one answer as to why we go into the Sukkah now. If it's commemorating the Exodus, it should be... During the time of the Exodus, we have one answer that it's there to get our attention. There's another answer. And it goes like this. Yes, we really should celebrate the clouds of glory right after Pesach. But this sukkah, it's not just a remembrance of the clouds of glory. If you do the sukkah properly, it's going to have the same spiritual power and potency as the clouds of glory. I'll give you an example. Our sages tell us that before Messiah comes, there's going to be an apocalyptic war, the war of Gog and Magog. Not coincidentally, we read about the war of Gog and Magog on the festival of Sukkot. And our sages tell us that this war is going to happen on Sukkot. And the Gona Vilna used to say that it's going to be a three-hour war, but a universal war. And only those who remain inside the Sukkah, only those who are cocooned in the clouds of glory, only they will survive. That's what our sages tell us. And the reason why they would survive it's because they're not just in a sukkah, in a booth. They're in the clouds of glory. And done properly, the sukkah is actually a reenactment of the clouds of glory. And this, by the way, is hinted to in the verse in Psalms 27. God will shelter me in his sukkah on the evil day. That's hinting, as he just tell us to the protection that God will give us, will afford to us during this world war of Gog and Magog, 
on the festival of Sukkot. And therefore, to appreciate and to recognize and to actually have the experience of being in the clouds of glory, it has to come after Yom Kippur. We are not capable of dwelling in the sukkah properly, of actually having a reenactment of the clouds of glory, absent the cleansing and the heightened spirituality that is created on sukkahs. And therefore, yes, ideally, it should be right after Pesach, but that's not feasible because we need Yom Kippur first. And therefore, five days after Yom Kippur, now it's time to recreate that experience of the clouds of glory. That's a second answer. Here's the third answer, and we're going to focus on this third answer. This brilliant answer comes courtesy of the Gona Vilna. As we mentioned earlier, the sin of the golden calf caused a temporary lapse in the clouds of glory. Jewish people did the sin and they kind of were reduced. They were reduced and they lost some of the perks of being God's nation. And the clouds of glory went away. And they were restored when the Jewish people began to build the tabernacle. Once the Jewish people started to build the Mishkan, the clouds that had been vanquished due to the sin of the golden calf, those clouds were restored. Now, when did the Jewish people start building the tabernacle? Well, we know Moshe came down with the second set of tablets on Yom Kippur. The following day, which is the 10th day of Tishrei, the Almighty tells Moshe, okay, assemble all the materials needed for the Mishkan. Gold, silver, copper, all these wools, all these hides, etc. Day 12 and day 13, the people gave donations. The verse says explicitly they gave donations for two days. Day 14, there was a call in the camp to cease bringing donations because two days of fundraising had achieved its goal and the coffers of the tabernacle were full. And they started building the following day, which is day 15. Thus, on the 15th day of Tishrei, five days after Yom Kippur, that's when they started building the tabernacle. And that's when the clouds reappeared. And that's why we're celebrating Sukkot on this day specifically, because this is when we got them back after the sin of the golden calf was restored with the building of the tabernacle. Now, according to this brilliant calculation from the Gona turns out that we did get original clouds, Pesach time. But those original clouds are not celebrated. It's only the restoration of those clouds that came after the repentance of Yom Kippur. We had the clouds, we lost them, we got them back. That's what we're celebrating, not the original clouds, but the restored clouds. That's the Gona Vilna. And that's what I want to ponder. And I want to ask two questions on his calculation. Question number one. Why, indeed, are we celebrating the clouds when they came back, when they reappeared, 
why don't we celebrate the original clouds? So we had the clouds right after the Exodus. We lost them within the golden calf. We got them back. Okay, let's celebrate those clouds. Why are we celebrating only those clouds? Question number one. Question number two, we know that on Yom Kippur, God forgave the Jewish people. Moshe got a second set of tablets. And the Almighty said, Salachti Kidvarecha, I have forgiven as per your request. Yet according to the Gona Vilna, the clouds did not come back. Not on Yom Kippur, day 10, not day 11, 12, 13, 14, only once they began to build the tabernacle, only once the construction began, only then did the clouds come back. If the Almighty forgave the Jewish people for the single golden calf on Yom Kippur, then all of the things that we lost with the golden calf, we should, you would think, you would imagine, we should get back on Yom Kippur. How come those clouds did not reappear for five days? They only came back on the 15th day of Tishrei when we started to build the tabernacle in actuality. So these are two questions we have to pose, and I think we're going to suggest an answer, an approach that will answer these questions, but also show us really what the festival is really all about, what it's building on, what it's building towards, and what's the kind of the grand scheme of these days. Here's what we're going to suggest. Yom Kippur and Sukkot are intimately connected. One comes right after the other. We finish Yom Kippur, right after Yom Kippur, you're supposed to start building your sukkah, assembling your four species. You don't have a moment to breathe. Right after Yom Kippur, the next mega festival is upon us. And the question is really, it's kind of staring us in the face. Yom Kippur is this zenith, this highest level, this day of total connection with the Almighty. This day of purification, everything's cleansed, everything's purified. You would imagine that when you finish Yom Kippur, you should have, you know, a couple of months where you can live off what you've accomplished on Yom Kippur. Why, right after Yom Kippur, do we transition to the next festival? That implies that there's something lacking, there's something missing, there's some sort of void that was not touched upon, that was not fixed, that was not addressed by Yom Kippur. What else needs to be done? Once you did Yom Kippur, you've reached the zenith, what else must you accomplish? So my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say that Yom Kippur, it's like a spaceship. It flies up into the stratosphere. And it's able to kind of reach heights never before seen or experienced by humanity. But what's the danger? The biggest danger for a spaceship, it's not what happens to it in space, but the re-entry. When the spaceship hurtles back into the atmosphere, that's when a danger can happen. It could fall apart. It could be destroyed. Yom Kippur is really the zenith. 
But we have to transition back into regular life. And we have to make sure that we don't lose what we've accomplished over the course of the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, 10 days of repentance, Yom Kippur. We don't want everything that we've earned to just disappear into the ether with the final blast of the shofar on the Ela at the end of Yom Kippur. For seven days of circus, right after we finish Yom Kippur, we spend seven days, seven plus one, ensuring that we integrate what we've accomplished on Yom Kippur. We integrate that into our life. We concretize that. We cement the relationship that we earned on Yom Kippur and we don't lose it. We ensure that it is perpetuated within us. So here's the idea I want to speculate. On Yom Kippur, we repent. We restore our relationship with our Creator. But that can be very easily undone right after Yom Kippur. Maybe you become a spacewalker on Yom Kippur, but it could all crumble when the spaceship re-enters the atmosphere. On Sukkot, we made sure that whatever we accomplished on Yom Kippur is ours for keeps, and we're not going to lose it. I want to speculate that there's a difference between doing repentance the act of repentance versus actually being a penitent, being someone who earned that relationship. You know, in Hebrew, the term for a penitent is a Baal teshuva. Baal means the master, the owner of repentance. Perhaps there's a difference between doing repentance and actually owning it, making sure that it's yours, being the master of that relationship. Perhaps we can speculate. Yom Kippur, it's the day of doing repentance. You're doing repentance. And repentance, of course, is coming back to God. You're coming back to God. On Sukkot, you're ensuring that you own it. It's yours. It's not something that you just did once, isolated, you did it, and that's it, you move on. It's yours. You're the master. You're the Baal Tshuva. You are the owner of that relationship. It's you. Let's go back to the original Yom Kippur. Original Yom Kippur, the Jewish people, they repented. And they might have forgave them. And they were restored to their original level. But that was an act of repentance. They came back to God. You know when they were close to God already Previously, at Sinai, they were also close to God at Sinai. Yet, they did the golden calf nonetheless. Whenever you're close to God, by Sinai, by Yom Kippur, there is a risk of recidivism. It could happen, again, it happened once, it can happen a second time. Where's the insurance? How do we make sure that the mistake doesn't happen again? We need something to perpetuate that Yom Kippur, to perpetuate that Sinai. And that is the Mishkan. That is the tabernacle. That's the portable Yom Kippur, the portable Sinai. When you become an owner of this relationship, when you have a guarantee that the mistake of the golden calf won't happen again, that this close relationship will be perpetuated. That's the theory. And it answers all of our questions.
Why do we celebrate the reappearance of the clouds and not the original ones? I want to speculate that actually the original clouds did come back on Yom Kippur. But they were clouds of the Yom Kippur level. You do repentance. You have Sinai. That's not the clouds of the festival of Sukkot. The festival of Sukkot, that is the tabernacle. That's when those clouds have been elevated to a higher level where you actually control, so to speak, your standing and you are insured, you are secured that it's not going to happen again. Those mistakes won't happen again. There's a Talmud that we love to quote. Everyone's favorite Talmud. Makam Shabali Chuva Omdim, the place where the Baali Chuva stand, Sadikim Gemurim Enam Omdim. Even the most pristinely righteous Sadikim cannot stand. You'll notice the Talmud does not say in the place where someone who does chuva, the place where someone who repented stands. It specifically labels this person as a Baal Teshuva, a master of repentance, a owner of repentance. I would imagine just like the place where the master, where the owner of repentance stands, even the completely righteous tzaddik cannot stand. I would imagine that those clouds, the environment, the atmosphere, where the penitent lives is grander than the clouds of the completely righteous person. So maybe the clouds, in fact, did come back on Yom Kippur, but they were of a lower level. Only when the tabernacle was built, when this higher level of repentance was achieved, when there was some security against recidivism, only then did the higher level of clouds appear. And that is what we're trying to do on the Festival of Sukkot. We're trying to make sure that we own this relationship, that we integrate this relationship into our lives. It's not just this fleeting moment of regret, I feel bad, I'm repented, I come back to God, I'm atoned for all my sins. That's great. That's Yom Kippur. How am I going to continue that throughout my life? That is the level of a Baal of an owner, so to speak, of repentance. And that is achieved over the course of the festival of Sukkot. It's to perpetuate the Yom Kippur into our lives and for the rest of the year. What do we do on this festival? How, in fact, do we concretize our relationship with the Almighty over the course of this festival? How do we transition from people who, yeah, we restored the relationship with God on Yom Kippur. How do we transition from that to people who are certain that the relationship will endure going forward? If you look at the festival of Sukkot, you'll see that it's all about deepening our relationship with God. Not just that. It's also about severing our relationship with the foreign God. Severing our relationship with this world, this temporary world, and all its temptations. The Festival of Sukkot is creating an atmosphere of closeness with God. It's about creating an environment 
where the relationship created by Yom Kippur can flourish and can endure. So if on Yom Kippur we achieved a level, a relationship with God, Sukkot is about creating the environment, the atmosphere in which that relationship can flourish. What do we do? We sit in the sukkah. More precisely, we leave our permanent dwelling and live in the temporary. We leave our climate-controlled homes and move into a porous and rickety gazebo and live there for a week. And as he just tells us, this is really about an attitude change. It's about realigning our life, what we're living for. Why does God not play an important role in our lives? Or why is that possible? How is it possible for the golden calf to happen? How is it possible for us to forget about God? It's because we live in a world in which God is obscured. The word for world, it has been pointed out, is olam, which means opacity and obscurity. In this world, God is obscured. The Yetzirah creates confusion. We have all these other themes that grab our attention. And God's like an idea. It's an idea. It's a nice idea. Of course, we're, we're believers. We're believers. We're not atheists. But still, it's a theoretical idea. Sukkot is about recalibrating things, about remembering about the permanent world and trying to disentangle ourselves from the fixation that we typically have with the temporary world. No one's going to say that the sukkah is a permanent residence. In fact, if it is a permanent residence, if the roof is not porous, it's not a kosher sukkah. It has to be clearly evident to all that it's a temporary residence. And we spend seven days in the temporary residence to think about what is life all about. Is it really this? It's just seven days in this very inhospitable sukkah? What about my comfortable house? I think that that's permanent, but really I I know that that too is also temporary. And I'm not going to be around forever. And yes, the house is much more secure than the sukkah, but both of them are temporary. And what's truly permanent? Well, that's that's my relationship with the Almighty. And living in that environment, that is an effort to create an environment that is conducive to never forgetting about God. It's like a mishkan. It's like you're in a world, you're in a place, you're in a situation, you're in a circumstances where you're really focusing exclusively about God to the exclusion of all the other things vying for your attention. On Shabbos of the intermediate days of Cholomoed, we read about the book of Ecclesiastes, Koheles. And that's all about ruminating upon the futility and temporality of this world. Think about how this world is just a distraction. We sit in the sukkah. The sukkah is co- it's called the shade of Emuna. 
Tzila Behemnusa, the shade of Amuna. It's not just an isolated mitzvah. It's an environment of faith to be enveloped by God, to be in God's shade, to be in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere for a whole week where we can perpetuate those accomplishments, that level that we achieved on Yom Kippur. We're enveloped by God. We're surrounded by God. We're in God's shade. We're cocooned by God. It's not just we're changing our location. It's a whole attitude changed. And that is intended to take what we've accomplished on Yom Kippur and to make it ours, to really adopt it, to become the owners of that repentance. And that environment of circus is conducive to perpetuating those accomplishments throughout the year. Now here's where it gets interesting. The end cap of this whole process is Shemini Atzeres. At the end of Sukkot, we have seven days of Sukkot, and then we have the eighth day. In Israel, the eighth day is the last day. It's bunched together with Simchas Torah, Shemini Atzeres, and Simchas Torah. In the diaspora, it's two separate days. What's what's this all about? What's the essence of Shemini Atzeres? So our sages tell us something very interesting. Rashi quotes the Midrash. It's really a seven-day festival. But after seven days, we're going to depart from God. And it's like a king who invites his children to a banquet, and it's a seven-day banquet, and on day seven, it's time to leave. And the king is so in love with the with his princes. He says, no, it's so difficult for me to depart from you. Stay for one more day. So today that we're kind of ensuring that we're, that as we're about to depart from God, we maintain and perpetuate our love. But it's interesting. The only festival in the whole Torah that does not have a mitzvah associated with it, it's Shemini Atzeres. On Rosh Hashanah, we have, of course, the Shofar. On Yom Kippur, we have a lot of mitzvahs, fasting, etc., on Sukkot, we have Lulav and sitting in the Sukkot. On Pesach, we have Matzah. Even on Shavuot, which people say, Shavuot is no standalone mitzvah. Actually, there is. There's the Shnei Halechem, the special offering that's brought only on Shavuos. The only festival does not have a unique mitzvah associated with it is Shemini Atzeres. And to make matters more interesting, our sages present this idea, the absence of a standalone mitzvah on Shemini Atzeres, that is presented as a central defining characteristic of this day. So for example, in Parshas Pinchas, we read about all the festivals, and we talk about Shemini Atzeres, and the Targum Yonasan, which is the translation of one of the Tanoim, very ancient translation, it tells us that this is a day of great joy as we leave the sukkah and go into our homes. It's kind of a bizarre thing. The day is presented as a day of joy. Why? Because we leave our sukkah and go into our home. It presents the fact that we're we're not doing the mitzvah. We're leaving the sukkah 
and going back to our normal life, that is the central element or a central element or defining element of this day. What we're not doing, the mitzvah, that is what is emphasized. Moreover, Rashi in the book of Sukkah, page 48a, he says that Shemitah Teres is regal b'fanatzmo, it's a standalone festival, unrelated to the festival of Sukkot. And he says, because you do not sit in a Sukkah. So he's telling us that the, the reason why we know that Shemitah Teres is its own festival is because we don't sit in the Sukkah. So isn't it interesting? We have this day. It's such a strange day, a day of love before the departure from God, but a day that the attributes that it has, the, the defining characteristic is the fact that it has no mitzvos, something which is unique to Shemitah not found by any other festival. Perhaps we can suggest that this day, which serves as the end cap of this whole process, this is the absolute epitome, the acme, the peak, the climax of this whole progression that began with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and continued with Sukkot. A mitzvah, that's a means to foster a connection between human and God. And we have all these mitzvahs to try to remind us that we're supposed to remember about God. When you walk into the door, you see the mezuzah, and they're supposed to remind you about God. And in the morning, you read Tefillin and you say your prayers and you're always saying your blessings and you're always making sure they're eating kosher. All these reminders to remember God. Ideally, or maybe even the ultimate level of connection is when there's such a tight and unbreakable bond that even without any mitzvahs, that connection remains strong. So the peak of this whole process is Shemini a totally mitzvahless day, a day of love and connection without any mitzvahs. And that is kind of the highlight, almost, of this whole process, where the relationship that we've worked really hard over the course of Yom Kippur to repent, to come back to God, and on Sukkot to create an environment in which that relationship would flourish, the end result of that is a connection so deep and so unshakable that it can continue and endure even without reminders, even without us being kind of shaken out of our default state to remember God, even without that, even without mitzvahs, that connection is strong. And what do we do in this day? We are joyous. We dance with the Torah. We celebrate this connection because now the connection is at its peak. And I was thinking over the course of, of Sukkot, there are many messianic undertones. When we leave our Sukkah, we talk about the, there's a prayer that we say that we should sit in the Sukkah of the Leviathan in messianic times. And there are all these parallels between us versus the nations, the 70 nations and the 70 bulls that are sacrificed over the course of Sukkot. 
And that's to symbolize the coalescing of the nations when we all become, so to speak, complete believers in the Almighty. And over the course of the festival, we read about various things that happened before that. So, for example, we read about the Apocalypse, the book of Zechariah, the war of the nations against Israel, this very dramatic showdown, the final showdown in Jerusalem. Everyone is fighting against the Jewish people. The Mount of Olives is going to split. And we read about the war of Gog, Gog, and, and Magog, the last battle prior to the Messiah. And we also read about the building of the Temple of Solomon. Perhaps we can suggest, what are the conditions needed to bring about the Messiah, to bring about the end of days, to bring about this transition of this world into a perfected and utopian state? where God is ever-present in this world? It's this process. You start off with repenting. An isolated act of repentance of Yom Kippur. Very high level. And then you ensure that you are the master, you have the owner, you control that. Because your environment is such, like the tabernacle, where that kind of relationship can endure and there is less of a risk of recidivism. And hopefully that will reach a peak, a climax, where there's such a deep connection. Even without mitzvot, the connection endures. And that is the means, the, the, the process, so to speak, that brings about the changing of everything. It's interesting, the Talmud tells us in the future, the Almighty is going to give reward to the Jewish nation for keeping the Torah. And all the other nations are going to say, well, we, we want a slice of the action. We want a little bit of this as well. And it's very long back and forth in the time we spoke about this in previous years. But the Talmud concludes the nations are desperate to have some of this reward, notwithstanding the fact that they didn't keep the Torah. And the Almighty offers them one more chance. And he gives them the mitzvah of sukkah. And he makes it really hot. And they all go out of their sukkah and they, they kick it in disgust. When the Gentiles are given one last shot to have Olam to have the reward of the upcoming epics and worlds, the mitzvah that kind of symbolizes this transition from our world to the next world is offered to them. This is the, the on-ramp, so to speak, to the afterlife. And they don't quite live up to it. But it does reveal to us that, that that's what's happening in this day. That is the power of these days. We start off with repentance. And this is the beginning of this process of redemption, of coalescing, of, of bringing about the perfection of humanity and the completion of our nation's mission. And we talk about all those final events that coincide with the Messianic arrival. We talk about the, the wars of the nations against the Jewish people and Gog and Magog, but we also talk about the rebuilding of the temple. We talk about the building of the temple of, of Solomon. And we know, the verse tells us, that redemption 
is always the byproduct of repentance. Uva litzion goel. Zion will have a redeemer. Uleshave peshabayakov. When amongst Jacob there are penitents. And the Talmud tells us the book of Yoma, page 86b. Gedola tshuva, shemekareves es hagula. Tshuva, repentance is great because it brings near the redemption. And it quotes this verse in Isaiah 59, 20. Why does the Redeemer come to Zion because of the penitence of Jacob? But I think it's not just simple repentance, an isolated, discreet act of repentance that fosters redemption. It's that redemption, it's that it's that repentance that endures, that continues through a process of sukkahs and ultimately brings about such a deep and loving connection that we can actually dance with the Almighty's Torah. Rabbi Berkowitz always points out there's only one nation in all of recorded human history that dances with their butchs. Only one. And that's us on Simchas Torah. That's it. Why? Why do we do that? Because we have such a close relationship with our Creator. That's the animating force of our lives. And we just are so bursting with joy and exuberance that we just have to dance. And that's the culmination of this process. Repentance. Ensuring that there is an atmosphere where that kind of closeness can flourish and endure. And ultimately arriving at such a close level we're dancing with his Torah and even without any mitzvahs that connection runs strong this was a new way to think about this whole festival season I thought I thought of uh, this year and I wanted to share it with you and I hope you found it uh, as interesting as, as I did and I hope you enjoyed it and I thank you all for listening as always my address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com